on this edition of the program. What the difference between House Republicans and Senate Republicans really are, and the strange fascination with the 1960s Paul Harvey monologue, If I Were the Devil. It's all coming up. This is made possible by Dustin Campbell, Oh Them Bones, Daily Tech News Show, Andy Beach, and Craig. Welcome, everybody, to the Politics, Politics, Politics program for Friday, July 28th. Gerald Bell, Justin Robert Young from Austin, Texas. You know, a lot is happening in the House and the Senate, uh, despite the fact that they are not really getting a lot done in terms of legislation. <laughs> there certainly is a focus on the cult of personality between these two groups of people. Not only is the raucous House Republican caucus something that can barely stand each other and certainly does not like working across the aisle. But then you have the Senate which expected to be the majority is not and now is looking to survive this term and the next to explain all of that we have alexander bolton he is a senior staff writer at the hill to help guide us through welcome to the show alexander thanks for having me so you in covering the Senate, uh, they're moving into a very, very busy uh, week here coming up against the uh, you know summer recess that they are going to take. But you recently wrote about some of the differences between the House Republicans and, and, and the Senate Republicans. If you could give us an, an overview of the gulf between those two groups as it stands right now, how would that go? Well, it's it's an ocean, ocean of difference, the size of the Atlantic, maybe you could say. And the main difference is in the House, you have a bunch of Republicans who are very allied with uh, former President Trump, who have bought into his um, claims that the 2020 election was stolen. Uh, they have, they have uh, bought into his claims that January 6th was a largely peaceful protest. Uh, they are talking about expunging his impeachment record. They're talking about impeaching uh, Joe Biden related to his business dealings and the son's business dealings. Um, and you have on one side of the Capitol in the House, Republicans have embraced Trump as a leader of the party. And on the Senate side, uh, where Mitch McConnell is the Senate Republican leader, there is a, a, an effort by a substantial number of Senate Republicans to move away from Trump. They see him as bad for the party, bad for their chances of retaking the Senate majority. And they see him as bad for business, not just political business, but also the nation's business. Uh, they see he, he promotes an instability that is essentially bad for corporate America. Um, and so, you know, we have two very different stripes of Republicans, and I'm speaking generally, there are, yeah. there are differences on an individual level, but generally speaking, there are two very different stripes of Republicans in the Senate and in the House. Historically, the Senate has more of a staid uh, reputation than the House, which often has been more rambunctious. But it, it sounds like based on your perspective, this seems even more of a divide than that normally is. Well, yeah, because, I mean, if, if you look at what the House is doing, I mean, it's really it's become the Jerry Springer show. I mean, I think you can say that, that you know, they're they're talking about. Um, I mean, there's Lauren Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene getting into a fight in the bathroom. I don't, I don't know if your listeners are familiar with that story. They're, everyone <laughs> is you know, various House Republicans racing to you know push articles of impeachment. Um, the you know, uh, there was a hearing 
just last week that uh, former Speaker Nancy Pelosi referred to as a clown show where Marjorie Taylor Greene was showing uh, nude images of Hunter Biden at this at this oversight hearing. Uh, there is, uh, you know, there are talks, there's there are discussions by Jim Jordan, the chairman of the Judiciary Committee to defund the FBI and, and Department of Justice that those those have been those ideas have been repudiated by Senate Republicans such as Senate Republican Whip uh, John Thune. Um, there is now talk about bringing in David Weiss, who was the Trump appointed U.S. attorney who handled the prosecution uh, of Hunter Biden, to which Hunter mm-hmm. Biden has guilty on tax charges and a firearm charge. Um, Weiss is going to testify before the Judiciary Committee in October. And the Justice Department doesn't typically testify on you know criminal cases like this, but they feel that there's been so much misinformation put out by House Republicans, they feel they need to correct the record. This is a Trump appointed U.S. attorney. Uh, who well, that would also be the, because of the, the whistleblowers, right? I mean, they, they, they had the, the, the testimony last week that that would seem to contradict at least what Weiss had said publicly and what Merrick Garland has said. Right. So it's pretty amazing that you that you're going to have a Trump appointed U.S. attorney has to appear before a House committee to correct misinformation. I mean, you know, he's saying that basically he's saying he's he's already contradicted these whistleblowers. He's and and he feels he needs to do so in person because what you know what he said last week wasn't enough. Yeah. So on on the Senate side, it it feels from afar that Republican leadership feels incredibly burnt by how the 2022 midterms went, that they led an opportunity to take the chamber pass by largely because of some of the raucous primaries that were left fairly untouched by Rick Scott, who was uh, running the apparatus to to control things on the Republican side during that cycle. Do you get a sense that part of this more buttoned up, uh, especially in comparison to the House uh, reputation for the Senate is is something designed to maybe for their best chance in 2024, take back that chamber? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, politics is what drives it. And and the overriding concern is winning back the Senate majority. I mean, that is what Senate Republicans care most about. So um, if they thought that Donald Trump was good for their efforts to win back the Senate, or if they thought defunding the FBI was good for their chances of winning back the Senate, or if they thought that you know, projecting uh, you know, nude photos of Hunter Biden at public hearings is the best for taking back the Senate. I think they would do it, but they think it's yes. bad politics. And here's here's kind of a critical distinction to explain the differences, the gulf, as you put it, between the House and the Senate. You know, in, in the Senate, obviously, you run statewide. In the House, you run district-wide. And what we've seen over the last couple of decades is these House districts are becoming increasingly gerrymandered. And so the you have a big block of Republicans who are running in such safe seats that all they have to worry about are challenges from their own right flank. So they really they can't get too extreme, really, politically, because they're more worried about a challenge from the right than any sort of challenge from the middle or from the left. So that 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 breeds a. Um, uh, I mean, I guess you could call extremism, you know, in, in their ranks because of uh, because of gerrymandering. If if the House districts and, I'm, and it's not just a Republican problem, it's a Democratic problem, too. I mean, that, that is the nature of the House. These districts have become they're, they're they become so concentrated in their party partisan affiliation that they end up sending these members to Washington who are just very, very partisan. And if the problem has gotten worse as these redistricting techniques have gotten more advanced, it's, you know, they have the they have you know, computer uh, you know, they have computers to help them really slice and dice these districts. In the Senate, you don't have that. You you don't get to pick your electorate. You have to run statewide, so you have to can deal with moderates and swing voters and members of the other party. And so you know that has a moderating effect on the membership, and then also the seats that are most competitive. Uh, are you know are ones where you certainly have to run to the middle if you're going to have any chance of winning. And so, what Mitch McConnell thinks went wrong in the last cycle is that the the candidates were uh, in Georgia, for instance, were too extreme and turned off middle of the vote, middle of the road voters. 
Well, not just extreme, but novices, right? I mean, you had you had two winnable seats in in Pennsylvania and and Georgia specifically. I mean, one in Ohio that actually won in JD Vance, but but candidates that had never run for office before, and and uh, you know, I, I think very much from that Trump mold of, well, if they're famous, they have name ID, and the rest you can hum. Well, Raphael Warnock, you know, who won in Georgia a couple of years ago, I mean, he was a political novice too. I mean, he was a uh, you know, he was a minister, so maybe there's some political experience in that. But you know, John Ossoff uh, didn't hold office before he won in Georgia. Uh, I mean, they, you know, um, so being a being a novice isn't necessarily a problem. I think it's more, you know, what what are the what are the positions you're embracing on on the trail, and in particular, if you are um, if you're seen as affiliated with Trump, that's a real turnoff to, to moderate voters. Um, so the other thing that, of course, hurt Republicans in the 2022 midterms was the uh, Supreme Court's decision, Dobbs versus uh, Jackson, Jackson Women's Health Organization, which overturned yes. Roe v. Wade. That, that fired up a lot of uh, independent and you know, young, younger voters. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess Ossoff did have that race. So there was some kind of national attention. At least it wasn't his his first kind of rodeo to to go right into a very contentious, very, very nationally covered statewide election. But obviously, the 2022 cycle is is something for, uh, uh, you know, the, the Republicans to continue to smart over, which is part of the reason why they, they seem to be intervening more in this cycles than in these 24 primaries. Right. Yeah, they're they're, they're making an effort to promote the, what they view as the most electable candidate in the primary. And in particular, the two states I would single out are West Virginia, where Mitch McConnell has really gone out of his way to recruit the popular Republican governor there, Jim Justice, who is leading uh, the incumbent Democrat, Joe Manchin, by about 22 points in the latest poll. And then in uh, Montana, um, Republicans really went all out to recruit this entrepreneur, former Navy SEAL, uh, Sheehy. Uh, Tim Sheehy, and they're promoting him over Matt Rosendale, the uh, statewide representative, or not statewide, I guess they now have two districts, but Matt Rosendale, the who is a representative from Montana and who who squared off against Tester in 2018 and lost. Um, Republicans are really trying to push uh, the nomination to Tim Sheehy. They seem as a much better general election candidate. So those are two examples where the House Republican, uh, sorry, the Senate Republican leadership has been much more aggressive than they were last cycle in trying to uh, promote one of the candidates in the primary. Now, just because the Senate Republicans have been more stayed in relation to the House, it's not to say that they have not made noise themselves. There has been a lot of ink spilled about Tommy Tuberville's protest in uh, terms of military uh, appointments and, and promotions, rather. And now you've seen similar efforts by two other Republican senators. Can you explain uh, uh, how out of the norm a a move like this is from Tuberville? Well, I mean, you're talking about blocking all the military promotions. Yes. More than yeah. I think the number is now 280 military promotions. It's it's very unusual. And because these are non-political uh, promotions, these are, non, these are non-political service members. So when you're holding them hostage, you're, you're holding the the non-political you know military leadership hostage and that's that's something very unusual for a republican to do or for anyone to do it just it hasn't it hasn't been done before briefly i think a couple of years ago there was a short hold by tammy duckworth holding up some non-political uh, military promotions but she she quickly dropped it this tuberville hold has been going on uh since february and it's it's affected i think the number now is 280 um military officials 280 military appointments so it, the sec, the secretary of defense argues that this is hurting readiness it's uh, it's something that uh, even past secretaries of defense have weighed in on and said this is bad for morale it's bad for the military so it's it, it, it i think um some senators actually senators on both sides of the aisle see this as an abuse of Tuberville's prerogative as a senator you are allowed to hold things up and slow things down to get your voice heard or to get some concessions on things. But it, it is unusual to to bring something that is generally nonpartisan, that is seen as for the benefit of the country, uh, to the seen as essential to national security, to bring that to a grinding halt, to wage a you know battle with the administration over 
abortion policy where the administration just isn't isn't going to back down. So it's it's you know kind of using a, a nuclear weapon to you know fight a war you can't win. So that's where that's where we are, and it doesn't look like there's going to be any um, you know breakthrough or, or resolution to this anytime soon. Because his protest is for, at least from what I have read, he is against the military's position on paid leave for out-of-state abortions and then DEI initiatives within the Pentagon, right? I mean, he's talked more, you know, mostly about abortion. I mean, I haven't heard DEI as much of a concern for him, but maybe he's okay. now explaining his objections to DEI. But but it's always been, for months, it's really been about abortion and specifically you know, having paying using taxpayer dollars to pay for uh, military service members to cross state lines to go to other states to have abortions. Of course, the reason why this is necessary is because in the wake of the Dobbs decision, mm-hmm. states that have military bases have all outlawed abortion. So the members can't get the abortions. The service members can't get the abortions in the state where they're based because there might be a six week ban or a total ban. So therefore, they have to go out of state to get the abortion in and the Pentagon pays for it. And the reason the Pentagon pays for it is that if the alternative is, alternative is if you have a kid, then you know, the service member just isn't of much service anymore. They have to take care of the kid. It really, it, it inhibits their ability to do their jobs. I'm sorry to say, but that's, I mean, it, there's a lot, there's a, there is a, there, it's not just politics here. It's not just liberal politics as, you know, Tuberville, Tuberville would contend the military needs is providing the service because otherwise the service members can't, you know, can't get abortions. They can't continue to, they're really hampered in their service. If they have, if they have to, if they have a six month old to take home, take care of at home. I mean, I'm sorry to be, I'm sorry if this sounds crass, but I mean, the, sure, yeah. the, 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 you know, the, uh, the armed services have, has long, you know, this, they have not been anti-abortion. They have, you know, before there, there, there once was a time where, you know, if, if, if you were a female service member, you didn't get an abortion, you couldn't serve in the military because if you have a kid, you are very limited use as a, as a war fighter or as a, yeah. as a logistics person. So from somebody who spends so much time covering the Senate, my sense is that usually when you have these kinds of conflicts, there is at least some kind of roadmap forward. If the the conflict is very present now and everybody wants to extract every television hit and headline that they possibly can. But it sounds like from from the way that you're talking about this, nobody really knows exactly how this ends because Tuberville doesn't really feel like he is he is going to relent and uh, doesn't feel like the Pentagon has any leeway or wiggle room to change what Tuberville wants changed. Yeah, I think this standoff is going to last uh, through through the end of the Congress. So I think it's going to go through the 2024 election. I don't see anything changing unless Tuberville completely capitulates. But I don't see the Biden administration backing down on this. I don't see Tuberville backing down on this. It's you know both of them. It's it is it's just a failure is not an option for for either of them. So yeah, I would be very. As if Tuberville has a change of mind, it's actually really boosted his political prominence. We're, we're talking about him; otherwise, we wouldn't be talking about him. It's given him a real, you know, national spotlight. So this is good politics for Tuberville, and I, I just think that the administration is going to have to find a way to muddle through, and you know, they're going to have to figure out ways to, you know, uh, do without these promotions. And so I guess you know maybe they'll figure out. Maybe they'll have to expand the command authority of people, even though they don't get the Senate confirmed promotion, or maybe they, maybe there are a few uh, promotions they bring to the Senate floor and actually vote on. Although the Senate democratic leader, Chuck Schumer hasn't shown any intention of you know, voting on any of these. He wants to keep the pressure on Tuberville. He sees it as good politics to argue that Tuberville is hurting national security. So yeah, it, it's good politics for everyone to stay exactly where they are. So I would be, I would be surprised that the, if there's any change on this, unless there is some sort of national security incident, and then the and then the 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 someone can make the argument that look, because this person wasn't confirmed, wasn't promoted to this role, we had a whole international security, and that created this, you know, that that led to this incident. So, for instance, if there's another spy balloon that floats across the United States, and the Biden administration can argue, 
we weren't able to, we weren't equipped to deal with this. We weren't able to deal with this because these promotions are held up. That might change yeah. things. Barring an incident, high profile incident like that, I don't think this changes at all. I don't think anything happens. You've seen JD Vance and Rand Paul uh, make similar moves with the State Department, or at least make noises about similar moves with State Department promotions. Do we have a sense that this is a spreading? If, if this is good politics on the Republican side, are there going to be more Republicans that want to practice good politics and standing up and holding up promotions? I don't know. I think that there is, you know, putting blanket holds, I think is it's costly. There's a lot of collateral damage. You know, you do gum up the works. It is essentially counterproductive to the governance of the nation. And I think, I think people recognize that. So I think, you know, I don't know what, what I don't know the latest with JD Vance's hold. He said he's going to hold up all department of justice nominees. I know that there, I spoke to the Senate Judiciary Committee chairman, Dick Durbin. He said that there was a U.S. attorney in Ohio, uh, Vance's home state that would be affected by this. So, you know, I kind of, and I haven't really heard much about it lately, but I can, you know, follow up and see what the latest is. But I'd be surprised if, you know, Vance really sticks to that hold. Uh, for instance, there's a U.S. attorney in his home state that needs to be confirmed. So let's yeah. say there are crimes being prosecuted in his home state because he's holding this up. I mean, that, you know, that's potentially damaging to him. So I just, I don't, uh, usually people aren't so stubborn about things. The difference is Tuberville. I mean, and Tuberville is just digging in his heels. He's also President Trump's closest ally in the Senate. So he's kind of, you know, he, he's kind of embraced the sort of the Trump approach of, um, you know, disrupt the system. And you don't have to, you know, uh, you don't you don't have to be a good sport. It's a, the system is corrupt and you, know, you take a no holds barred approach. I mean, that's kind of the that is the Trump approach to politics. And that's the, the approach that Tuberville is taking. And I, I'd be surprised if Vance goes that far. But, you know, he may decide that that's, a, you know, that's what he needs to do. But as I said, there are there are there is collateral damage for you know, taking a, a stand like that. And, you know, it's not risk free. You can come back to uh, hurt you politically. You know, J.D. Vance's actions here, and, and he's somebody that I, I'm very curious to continue to watch what happens, especially through the next year and a half, because while he is just the, at the beginning of his six-year term, there is quite possibly the closest race of the 2024 cycle in his home state of Ohio and a very shrewd, well-liked politician. The senior senator from that state is up for reelection in a rapidly reddening Ohio. So do you get the sense that that some of this is going to have a ramifications in in that specific situation? Uh, you know, I don't. And because I really don't really ever recall uh, a the you know one senator from a different party affecting a senator's reelection effort. Usually, uh, that that Senate race with Sherrod Brown is going to be about Sherrod Brown. It's going to mm-hmm. be about the you know policies that he favors. It's going to be about the top of the ticket, the presidential race that has a big impact on on Senate races. Um, it's going to be on the state of the economy. It's going to be on the quality of uh, Brown's opponent. I don't think I don't think JD Vance is going to have much of an impact at all, simply because I can't I cannot name a single Senate race ever in my career where you know one home state senator has materially mm. affected the 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 fortunes of the other. Sure, JD Vance will campaign against Sherrod Brown. Um, you know, maybe he'll do some get out the vote events. You know, he'll endorse his opponent, of course. I mean, he will criticize he will criticize his record to some extent, but you know, I mean, they are gonna work together on a on a rail safety bill. So I mean, they're not they're not really sworn enemies. I mean, they have there's a lot of reason for them to work together to get things for Ohio. Yeah. So it's not really in JD Vance's interest to, you know, to go scorched earth against uh, Sherrod Brown. And even if he did, um, you know, I, it probably wouldn't have much of an impact on the race. Because Sherrod Brown, frankly, is better known in Ohio than J.D. Vance's. And, you know, I mean, who's who's J.D. Vance? We have yet to see, you know, who he is, really. I mean, he just got there. Sure. So I, I don't think that has I don't think that has much effect. I think I think the um, personally, I think the biggest difference maker is going to be, you know, who's at the top of the ticket. Um, yeah. Whether it's Donald Trump or someone else. And I personally think that if Trump is at top of the ticket that helps Sherrod Brown because it makes him look moderate by comparison. And it also really juices the uh, democratic vote. 
Um, you know, people aren't Democratic voters aren't at all excited about Joe Biden, but they will be excited to turn out against Donald Trump. Now, I've also spoken to Senate Republican strategists who think that if Trump is the top of the ticket, it will actually hurt. Actually, it will actually hurt uh, Sherrod Brown because it'll rev up the Republican vote. But my my theory going into next year's election is that uh, you know Trump is more of a turnout machine for Democrats than he is for Republicans. You know, I, I would agree with you in a lot of states. Uh, I'd agree with you in Georgia. I'd agree with you in Nevada. I'd agree with you in Michigan and Wisconsin. I don't know if I agree with you in Ohio, just, just based on, on what happened between 2016 and 2020, you know, the Ohio does just particularly seem that in Florida where we're, you know, once very, very purple bellwethers that seem to have responded to the, the, the Trump populism. But then again, you know, uh, who knows, maybe, maybe the, the, uh, the, the siren song is worn off by then. Well, Trump could have 100 felony counts against him by Election Day 2024. So that's true. You're telling me that's not going to have an impact on the Senate race. I would be stunned, but we'll see. I mean, that's why it's business to see what I mean. Look, I don't I don't have a crystal ball. Yeah. Voter is very hard to predict. So these are just hypotheses I'm, I'm throwing out there. And you're right. I mean, I've heard people say what you're saying, that Ohio is become so red that that Trump is a net is a net plus there. However, you know, this is also a state that Barack Obama won twice, right? So it's not, it wasn't so long ago that it was a democratic state. It does have, you know, there are large, you know, democratic enclaves that can be turned out. And Trump is a very flawed candidate. I mean, he has 71 felony counts against him right now. There are going to be additional counts related to January 6th. There's going to be the uh, the Georgia, uh, the Fulton County District Attorney is going to bring out more charges. So we could get we could be close to 100 felony charges against this guy. And some of these could even go to court. I mean, there could even be a conviction before Election Day. So I just think there's there's there is so much uh, downside risk to Trump. And to get back at the start of our conversation, that's why Senate Republicans think he is just, he's kryptonite. They think he's a complete politically. Um, And these are now on the house side, it's different because these, these, so many of these districts are so gerrymandered. They're so Republican leaning that you just have to constantly cater to the Trump base. Otherwise you you face a primary challenge down the road. And so that's where these guys are coming from. And so that's why you have this real tension in Washington playing out this year and will continue to play out next year. Yeah. And it's, it's fascinating to see where we've come from at the end of 2022, which was looked at, especially from the Republican perspective as, you know, the, the, the red wave that wasn't, it, it, you know, avoided total disaster in, in the house, but certainly fell far short of where they wanted it in the Senate. And now, as you pointed out, we could be up to a hundred felonies, uh, uh, but based on each case that gets brought against Donald Trump, at least in this Republican track, uh, uh, you know, polling tracking, he's gone up five to 10 points with each case. So, so maybe he, if he, he's like a hundred, I'd prefer to maybe he can get up to, to, to 80 plus based on where this polling is. Well, but I think I wrote about this in one of my stories last week. Um, yeah. If the, the Republicans are rallying behind Trump, but this is actually hurting him with independent voters um, and independent voters think that some of these charges are serious and there's, there's polling out there. I can't pull it off the top of my head right now, but there, there, I, I mean, there is a number there, there is data out there showing that independents uh, are getting a queasy feeling about all these, you know, these legal problems facing Trump. I mean, we are getting, uh, I mean, you could even call it a constitutional crisis if you have the, you know, if let's say you, let's say he's convicted and sentenced to jail after after he wins the the presidency or something like that. I mean, it, this is really we're getting into, you know, the the it's, it's completely uncharted territory. One hundred percent. And it will certainly be something that not only we watch for the presidential side, but also everything that happens in the Senate. Thank you. For our guest time, Alexander Bolton of The Hill, for giving us a better idea of all of that. Thank you so much for joining us, Alexander. Thanks for having me today. This is your update brought to you by TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Again, that is TakePoliticsSeriously.com. That's where you go to support this show. If you want to become a $3 a week patron, less than a cup of coffee, you get two bonus podcasts each 
and every week. If you would buy me a cup of coffee once a week to give you an extra hour's worth of political commentary, well, then it's worth it for you. Head on over there. Take politicsseriously.com. And, you know, this kind of stuff is news dependent. And if you are a patron, then you got my full thoughts on the Hunter Biden plea deal falling apart for now. So you want that? Go ahead and get it. In the meanwhile, we have this. This is some news that actually will affect the X's and O's of the 2024 race. Should Donald Trump be the nominee? Former President Trump, the leading GOP candidate in 2024, is formally backing the Republican National Committee's Bank Your Vote initiative to push to get as many Republicans nationwide to vote early in 2024. This is an exclusive to Breitbart News. Quote Trump, Radical Democrats have abused and taken advantage of absentee and early voting laws to build a big lead over Republicans before Election Day. All right, I'll stop with the Trump impression. While Republicans have worked to share our beautiful values with voters, Democrats and dangerous groups funded by the far left have simply focused on collecting ballots. That's all they want to do, collect ballots. But you know what? It turned out not to be such a bad idea. This much change for us to uh, win in 2024. We may not like the current system, but we need to master the rules and beat the Democrats at their own game. Then we can make our own rules. Republicans must get tougher and fight harder and cast our votes and get our ballots turned in earlier so Democrats can't rig the polls against us on Election Day. We cannot let that happen. They rigged the election in 2020. We cannot let it happen in 2024. You know, this is the kind of thing that I was expecting Ron DeSantis to be better at in terms of taking on Trump. There's no reason why Ron DeSantis doesn't have a better lane to say it's not that Trump is wrong. It's that Trump is incompetent. And if Trump, for whatever reason, decided that he just hated mail-in ballots, then he probably would have, you know, been coming to the end of his second term. Republicans have a natural advantage for early voting, or at least mail-in ballots. That's what it used to be. And it was totally and voluntarily surrendered by Donald Trump in 2020 for reasons. I mean, I can understand. I guess he was mad that a lot of these states were changing their rules because of the pandemic. But still, here we are. Beep, 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 beep goes the truck backing up. Or at least maybe the Trump train backing up. Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell said this week that the central bank is nowhere near declaring victory over inflation, but offered good news. The Fed staff believes that the U.S. will avoid recession this year. The Fed raised interest rates for the 11th time since March 2022 to their highest level in more than two decades to kill inflation. Central bank officials are cautioning that there might be more hikes to go. Powell told reporters that the process of taming price spikes with a quote was a long way to go, which would mean increases in the unemployment rate and slower wage growth. Even so, staff economists at the central bank whose brief policymakers or so who brief policymakers before interest rate decisions no longer think that an economic contraction is the most likely scenario before the end of the year. They have raised the odds of a slump after multiple banks failed this March. Quote, uh, Powell again, given the resilience of the economy recently, they are no longer forecasting a recession. While no one can say with any certainty what might happen over the next several months, the shifting forecast underscores how much inflation has come down over the past year, dropping from 3% or to 2-3% in June from the previous year, even as unemployment has remained essentially flat. The issue is whether the forecast merely shifts the timing of a recession into next year or if the Fed can achieve a so-called soft landing where the economy can avoid a recession even as growth slows. This obviously is particularly interesting to Joe Bidenomics, 
the White House has put their name on the economy. We talked to Bill Share on Monday or on, on Wednesday, rather, about it. And that's that's huge. You know, if this is glowing economic news by the time that the election comes around, then it's going to be very hard to beat Joe Biden, regardless of what else you think about him. And finally, a bizarre scene in the Senate this Wednesday as Mitch McConnell abruptly stopped his opening remarks at an afternoon press conference, causing alarm when he left for a few minutes before returning to answer questions. You can, the audio is not great because it's literally just Mitch McConnell looking ahead and then a little confused and then he comes back and answers questions. But Senate Minority Leader only got through a few words of his speech about the chamber's annual defense bill, then trailed off and stared straight ahead for a few minutes as his fellow senators asked if he was okay. A McConnell aide said that he was feeling lightheaded. McConnell himself said he was feeling fine following the brief episode and then taking questions. Obviously, the question of exactly how old our leaders are is something that will only continue. Mitch McConnell did suffer a concussion earlier this year after he uh, fell on stairs. But as we just heard from uh, Mr. Alexander Bolton there, he is the leader of the more staid element of the Republican Party. TakePoliticsSeriously.com is the leader for your ability to get more PX3. Get two bonus episodes each and every week. Head on over there. $3 level. TakePoliticsSeriously.com. I want to play for you an ad that came across my X timeline, not Twitter anymore. It's X came across my X timeline this week. It is uh, an ad supporting President Trump. It looks as if it's from the Trump campaign. I, I don't have confirmation on that, but go ahead and listen to it. If I was the deep state and I wanted to destroy America... I would rig the election with a puppet candidate, one that was so compromised that they would never say a word about it. I would create a false flag that allows for mail-in ballots. I would be in charge of the ballot counting machines. I would create a false flag to blame all who question the results of the election. If I was the deep state, I would prosecute anyone that went against me. I would sue and prosecute anyone that spoke up about the fraudulent election. I would use my powers to shut down all your internet businesses and bankrupt you. If I was the deep state, I would make everyone an example why you should never question a Democrat ever winning an election. I would imprison my foes. I would use my corrupt DAs and blackmailed judges to destroy you. I would make sure all crimes I ever committed never happened. I would prosecute my biggest competition. I would make sure they could never run for office ever again. If I was the deep state, I would convince everyone that Ukraine Nazis were good and women are men. If I was the deep state, I would own every politician that mattered. If I was the deep state, I would push my pedophilia ambitions on you. If I was the deep state, you'd question your sexual identity but not the medical establishment. If I was the deep state, you would fear to ever resist me. If I was the deep state, you would wish I was really the devil. If I was the deep state, I would say mission accomplished. I don't quite know whether or not this is something that is just kind of having a moment in right-leaning circles, but that ad is a parody of this famous monologue by one of the most iconic voices in radio. The monologue is called If I Were the Devil, and it was done by Paul Harvey. If I were the devil, if I were the devil, if I were the prince of darkness, I'd want to engulf the whole world in darkness, and I'd have a third of its real estate and four-fifths of its population, but I wouldn't be happy until I had seized the ripest apple on the tree, the. So I'd set about however necessary to take over the United States. 
I'd subvert the churches first. I'd begin with a campaign of whispers. With the wisdom of a serpent, I would whisper to you as I whispered to Eve. Do as you please. To the young, I would whisper that the Bible is a myth. I would convince them that man created God instead of the other way around. I would confide that what's bad is good and what's good is square. And the old I would teach to pray after me, our Father, which art in Washington. And then I'd get organized. I'd educate authors in how to make lurid literature exciting so that anything else would appear dull and uninteresting. I'd threaten TV with dirtier movies and vice versa. I'd peddle narcotics to whom I could. I'd sell alcohol to ladies and gentlemen of distinction. I'd tranquilize the rest with pills. If I were the devil, I'd soon have families at war with themselves, churches at war with themselves, and nations at war with themselves until each in its turn was consumed. And with promises of higher ratings, I'd have mesmerizing media fanning the flames. If I were the devil, I would encourage schools to refine young intellects, but neglect to discipline emotions, just let those run wild. Until before you knew it, you'd have to have drug-sniffing dogs and metal detectors at every schoolhouse door. Within a decade, I'd have prisons overflowing, I'd have judges promoting pornography, Soon I could evict God from the courthouse, then from the schoolhouse, and then from the houses of Congress. And in his own churches I would substitute psychology for religion and deify science. I would lure priests and pastors into misusing boys and girls and church money. If I were the devil, I'd make the symbol of Easter an egg and the symbol of Christmas a bottle. If I were the devil, I'd take from those who have and give to those who wanted until I had killed the incentive of the ambitious. And what'll you bet? I couldn't get whole states to promote gambling as the way to get rich. I would caution against extremes in hard work, in patriotism, in moral conduct. I would convince the young that marriage is old-fashioned, that swinging is more fun, that what you see on TV is the way to be. And thus I could undress you in public and I could lure you into bed with diseases for which there is no cure. In other words, if I were the devil, I'd just keep right on doing what he's doing. If you are not familiar with Paul Harvey, then I would suggest listening to him a little bit more. He is an icon in radio. He pioneered a lot of what we know as one mic radio. He was born in 1918. He lived until 2009. And not only was he somebody that delivered the news, he was also known for his The Rest of the Story segments, which showed off what a talented writer Paul Harvey was. He would present little-known or surprising facts about a story or a person. Harvey's broadcasting career spanned, spanned more than 70 years. His programs reached millions of listeners across the United States. His style was characterized by a slow and measured cadence, along with his signature introduction. Hello, Americans. This is Paul Harvey. Stand by for news. Now, the clip I played of Harvey's If I Were the Devil was originally broadcast back in the 1960s. But the one I played for you is from 1996, which accounts for some of the references to gun violence and sexually transmitted diseases that have no answers, which obviously were very much in the news at that period of time. The essay itself fascinates me for a lot of reasons. First, Paul Harvey is a titan, and... The reason why this show exists on some level is because I've always had a fascination with one mic radio. When I was a kid growing up in South Florida, Neil Rogers was the voice there. Um, you know, Rush Limbaugh is somebody that I have said that when I started listening to one mic radio to learn about how it was done, become fascinated by the convention. Sports talk radio was one of them. Jim Rome, uh, uh, certainly a name there. Colin Cowherd is somebody that continues to do it to this day by himself, which is hard. 
Uh, and then, of course, there's Rush Limbaugh, which in the world of politics, there's really no one else that got to the level that he got to without somebody else. There's obviously other gigantic icons in, in political media, both from a persuasive point of view and from a news point of view, but nobody did it in one mic radio like Rush. I would say, you know, even Glenn Beck has a sidekick. But so much of that comes from Paul Harvey. So much of what we think of as a pure-hearted uh, Midwest aesthetic comes from Paul Harvey. And he's an inspiration for anyone who's done radio or podcasts. He's in many ways the divine spark specifically of conservative radios, podcasts, and monologue-heavy YouTube. And I wonder what brings about this fascination with this specific monologue, because I've seen it a few times. It often is rooted amongst the conspiracy minded, which is frustrating because I would really, really, really hate for Paul Harvey to be co-opted as some kind of extremist. In fact, a fact that many of you guys might not know, he was literally proffered as the antidote to extremism. During the Ruby Ridge standoff, the man who was besieged by government agents demanded to hear Paul Harvey tell him to surrender. And Paul Harvey did it. He made a broadcast for that man specifically. So, because I am fascinated by our modern era, and because I do want to honor the legacy of Paul Harvey, I'll give you the rest of this segment. Because, friends, if I were the devil, I'd lurk in the shadows of our calendar. In the moments of exhaustion, when life and sacrifice gives way to a need for entertainment. If I were the devil, that's how I'd corrupt otherwise good-hearted people. I'd wait until they need a break and therefore look to their fellow man through our online looking glass. If I were the devil, I'd make sure that that gaze into humanity was a funhouse mirror, twisted to make good people look evil and evil people look good. If I were the devil, I'd redefine hyperbole as education. I'd confuse moral certitude with curiosity. If I were the devil, I'd make being wrong in the eyes of the right people a capital punishment. I'd put authority in the hands of unelected, unvetted bullies. Support them and survive. Challenge them and perish or truly make a difference and become one. If I were the devil, I'd put activists in charge of our news. I'd subvert journalistic norms, so being factually accurate is a sin if the facts don't support the cause. If I were the devil, I'd make political parties the highest form of order. I'd make talking points holy text. I'd make politicians symbols of purity. I'd make that glance toward our fellow man so rotten and so evil that we'd forget how much we love each other. I'd make every blemish a disfigurement, every disagreement a fight, every word violence. If I were the devil, I'd blame the machines for our bad behavior so we didn't have to feel the shame ourselves. I'd blame systems so we don't have to yearn for hope. If I were the devil, I'd smile the less we thought of each other, the more we recoiled from our friends and family for mere disagreements of opinions. If I were the devil, I'd make second-rate podcasters do impressions of people with real talent. In other words, if I were the devil, I'd keep doing everything I'm doing. And that's it for us today. 
Politics, Politics, Politics is written and performed by me, Justin Robert Young. It's edited by Brett Stewart for Dog and Pony Show Audio. If you'd like to email me, it is theyoungamerican at gmail.com. On Twitter, it is px3tweets or x. It's going to give it to you. X for the show is px3tweets. X for me, Justin R. Young. You can find me live on Twitch, px3live.com. Our newsletter is px3newsletter.com. Our podcast that you can share with your friends, family, and clergy is px3podcast.com. You can support me with a one-time donation, paypal.me slash payjury. My Venmo is justin-young-20. Cash app is px3cash. You can send me anything you'd like in the mail, P.O. Box 1531-84, Austin, Texas, 78715. Of course, you can always get our bonus content at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. $3 tier gets you two bonus podcasts per week covering all the news I'll be missing on our free podcasting schedule. And our $10 tier gets your name right at the end of the show like these fine folks in our Titanic. $10 tier. Jason, Andres, Matt, John Gross, C. Garcia, Matthew T. El Basso, John, Craig Potts, MC Dradio, Bugs Life, Neemeister, Unsafety, B-Level, Amanda, Ye Old Pinball Shop. DP4 Bongo, Catherine, Todd, Invoke Gloria Young for King of the New World Order, Edison, Up, Up, Down, Down, Left, Right, Left, Right, BA, Select, Start, Dr. G, Neil, Charles, Darren, 100 Mile Runner, Aegis, Arslanian, Bluefront, and the Lenina, DL, Steven, Chad, Nomadic, Terran, Molly's Dashing Debut, Adam, Chief Andy, Robert, Casey, Paul, he is awesome. Brad Richard, just another pilot, middle-aged Mike who loves Frank got abducted, Utah, Jimmy Montana, the Gen A-L-D-L-D-L-D, Really? Chopper, Andrew, and Joshua. You want your name read on the show? One place to do it. Take politics seriously. Dot com. Hope everybody has a good weekend. Still a scorcher right there. I got the whole young clan coming into town. Brother, mom, niece, nephew. Oh, boy. We're going to be juggling a full boat out here in Austin, Texas, and hopefully trying to stay cool in the process. In the meanwhile, I wish you and yours... An amazing summer weekend. Until next time, this is your old pal, Justin Robert Young, saying some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more discuss politics. But this, this is the only show that dares discuss all three. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs> Dog and Pony Show Audio.